The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. Well, here we are, bleary eyed, at the end of a four day work week that felt, up here on Beacon Hill, anyways, a lot more like a six day week. Is that accurate, guys? Seven. <laughs> it didn't help that most of us were here until about 10 o'clock last night. Yeah, Thursday was easily several days long. Yeah. Um, so let's let's start with that, why don't we? Um, let's. We were here late last night uh, because there was a Senate session going on, and they were, Katie, you were down on the floor. They were seemingly about to adjourn when... When instead they recessed subject to the call of the chair and the senators from both parties filed into President Spilka's office um, where they discussed what we eventually found out was the Ethics Committee's report into the conduct of Senator Michael Brady of Brockton. Yeah, and uh, refresh our memories, Matt, uh, what happened last year with Senator Brady? Yeah, so this goes back to March of 2018 uh, when the senator was arrested for drunk driving in Weymouth. Uh, His case wound its way through the courts, and then this past summer in June, he actually entered a plea agreement where he uh, admitted to sufficient facts uh, to the state. Uh, He agreed to surrender his license, undergo some alcohol and substance abuse uh, programming, and then the Senate referred his case to the Ethics Committee for further investigation, and that has been going on behind uh, closed doors and all hush-hush because they don't talk about what happens in the Ethics Committee since June. And we had all been wondering what action they might take. Uh, Was it possible that there could be some kind of a censure or that sort of thing? And, um, of course, every time you'd see Chairman Eric Lesser in the hall, you'd ask him what's up with the ethics investigation. Sure. Um, And so there we were for three hours outside the Senate president's office suite, um, wondering what would emerge. Yeah, the Senate, they took, a, they took a while going through the uh, Ethics Committee report, and uh, their recommendations could have been anything from a, a censure or a, a reprimand to, a, a, you know, as far as removing him uh, from office. Uh, they obviously did not go that far, but the Senate adopted the committee's recommendations and uh, stripped uh, Senator Brady, who's from Brockton, of his uh, Public Service Committee chairmanship. He was allowed to keep his vice chairmanship on the Committee of uh, Tourism. But uh, he was stripped of that, which carries a $15,000 stipend for this session. And Sam, you mentioned um, that the Ethics Committee members for months have been very tight-lipped about what's going on here, where their investigation stands and what they're doing. And they Were they very forthcoming last night after it was all over? Um, they were very forthcoming with their belief that the report speaks for itself, which is a phrase Matt and I heard several times from several different people last night. Um, but beyond that, they were very still reticent to talk about it, to, to go into detail on why they decided to recommend removing Senator Brady as chair, why they took the step of recommending that he, he seek and receive professional help uh, dealing with alcohol. And they were really just not up for talking about any element of it, which is a, is a little bit of a contrast. You, you noted when we were talking earlier this morning, Sam, from the, the last time we saw the ethics committee 
uh, issue a report that was in former Senate President Rosenberg's case. They kind of gathered all the press in the president's suite, made a statement. They still didn't really answer questions, but they they had the uh, addressed it. There, yeah, the they had, they addressed it kind of as an institution. This was very much you've seen our statement, you've seen the report. This is all we have to say. Right. Um, and as you noted uh, earlier, Katie, in, the, in that conversation we were having, uh, the Rosenberg investigation much more involved the business of the Senate or, or the implications for the branch as an institution. Um, so that might also get at some of the differences here. Besides which, we, we see different leadership. There's a different chairman. There's a different Senate president. So that might also be contributing factors. Does the vice chairmanship have a stipend? It does. The The vice chairmanship that the senator will keep carries a uh, $5,200 uh, stipend for this session, so he is able to hang on to that. But like Katie said, if the report speaks for itself, uh, what we found in the report was that the committee really zeroed in on the facts uh, that uh, Brady, when he was pulled over in Weymouth, apparently uh, gave the arresting officer a copy of his state house ID, told him that he was a state senator, and the committee considered that to be a violation of Senate conduct rules that prohibit any member from using their position to uh, influence or gain undue favor. Now, uh, Brady did not refute any of those details. He also told the committee he didn't remember uh, telling the cop that he was a state senator. He remembered giving his state house ID because he said it was in his jacket pocket and easier to reach than his license, which was in his wallet, uh, in his back pocket, and he was sort of fumbling around. But we also know uh, from the report that he was quite intoxicated, uh, and that is something he has also admitted that he had been drinking. Right. You, you mentioned gaps in memory, and without being flipped, there were a number of things that he didn't exactly recall from the sequence of, of events of that night. Yeah, we also learned more in the report than we ever learned from the police reports about what uh, the senator had been up to that night. There was a full interview transcript, was was there not? There was. Uh, uh, Brady, uh, back in the summer, was given the chance to meet with the committee, sat down with his attorney, and uh, the committee uh, fully acknowledged that uh, while Brady said that he had been at a community celebration in Brockton in the afternoon, this was a Friday afternoon in March, that lasted until dinner time. The committee said what happened after that was less clear, even by Brady's recollection. Uh, there's a narrative that includes Brady coming into the city uh, to pick up someone at Logan Airport. He winds up in the north end looking for parking, can't find parking, comes to the state house to use the restrooms, uh, leaves the state house, and finds his way to a nearby bar, which Brady refused to name to the committee, where he proceeded to have some whiskey shots with what he described as a bunch of young people. Then he left the bar, got himself uh, a bite to eat, and tried to drive home at around 2 a.m. on Saturday morning uh, and wound up getting arrested. And you say he refused to name the bar. Uh, to be clear, I, I think we understand that he didn't want to get the bar in trouble for over serving a patron. Exactly right. He told the committee that uh, it was his responsibility, that he was the one responsible for drinking too much, not the bar for over-serving him. He didn't want to put that on them. So uh, he has not uh, told uh, yet the committee or, or any of his colleagues where he was drinking. And he said that's why he told the police officer who arrested them that he was coming from a work event and not a bar in Boston that would have furthered that investigation. Katie? Yeah, and I just think it's worth noting, too, um, Senator Brady said in a, a statement to us last night, reiterated that he didn't fully recall what happened this, that night, but said he never intended to suggest that he was above the law, um, that he's going to 
you know, from this point out, he accepts the decision of his colleagues in the Senate and plans to continue working on his recovery. And we should point out that he was reelected last year, even after a lot of this had had, had come out and, and started to emerge. And he certainly wants to continue serving. He said he hopes to continue to serve with honor. But yeah, that was the most damning thing probably in the report sure. uh, that uh, the committee said that they asked uh, the senator whether or not he was attempting to influence the the field sobriety tests and and what was uh, his interactions with the cop. And he told the committee that he didn't know. And he did seek professional help last year after this came out. Uh, And as Katie noted, uh, the ethics committee strongly suggests or recommends. They can't mandate it, right? But they strongly recommend that 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 continue. Um, Before we move on to what's ahead next week, folks, with the final week before the winter recess in the legislature, a couple of other things that we could recap from this busy four-day week. Uh, For one thing, there's, as of today, this is the 15th, right? Friday the 15th. As of today, there's a new uh, colonel at the helm of the state police, Christopher Mason. And uh, this comes after the retirement of 49-year-old state police colonel Kerry Gilpin. Um, Matt, you were down there for part of the uh, press conference this week. This appointment of Christopher Mason is part of the governor's ongoing efforts to reform the state police, right? Yeah, Colonel Mason, uh, now in charge, I think starting today, uh, engaged in a number of conversations uh, with the governor in the buildup to his selection that the governor said he was interested in hearing his plans for improving the uh, public image of the state police and kind of restoring uh, the public's faith and trust in that agency. So that was a big uh, part of this. Uh, Obviously, state law requires that the governor choose a superintendent from within the ranks of the state police. So maybe not a huge surprise that he would simply elevate the number two at the agency to the top job. But I think we heard uh, from Colonel Mason uh, some ideas that he has for achieving uh, that goal of uh, restoring public faith, including, uh, you know, improving diversity and uh, focusing at the academy on de-escalation tactics. That was the big word, right. Yeah, de-escalation and empathy rather than sort of a paramilitary, uh, you know, law enforcement, batons and shields type of force. He wants to kind of maybe soften the image uh, there and, and be more of a community policing type of organization. So I thought that was quite interesting. Uh, but, you know, we will see there's still a number of tests at that agency as they're trying to recover from a bunch of these scandals, including uh, wrapping up a, an internal affairs investigation into uh, overtime abuse. And we shouldn't let this takeout go by without noting that we've got another former governor of Massachusetts running for president this cycle. And Yet another former governor of Massachusetts running for president in general. We were, we were looking back at the list just since JFK, and there were a couple of names that I didn't even know <laughs> had run for president. Uh, yeah, no one remembers the Vol- Volpe, Volpe campaign here. <laughs> yeah. Everyone, of course, remembers the Duke and yeah. Kerry and Romney, some of them a, a couple of times. And as as somebody pointed out on Twitter, uh, what about Jane Swift? But acting Governor Jane Swift, and she she actually responded, I think, to to a couple of those tweets. She did. She said she's running, but more uh, miles on pavement rather than uh, hitting the the early voting states like New Hampshire. <laughs> uh, what's what's former Governor Patrick's uh, path here? And and we've been seeing some interesting takes over the last day or two. Um, there was sort of a contrarian 
point of view from uh, Kevin Cullen in the Globe today that for all the folks talking about conventional wisdom and when you should be in the race by, uh, according to Cullen, after the Trump campaign, conventional wisdom's out the window. That's a fair point, right? I mean, I think the conventional wisdom is that Governor Patrick's path here is narrow. Uh, he acknowledged as much when he told The Globe uh, in an interview before his rollout on Thursday that he, he knew that this was a Hail Mary from two stadiums away. Uh, he is starting with no uh, very little staff, uh, no field operation in the early voting states, no money to speak of, no ability to write a, a you know, multi hundred million dollar check to himself like maybe someone like Mike Bloomberg could do. Uh, he's got a lot of catch up to play here uh, and he has very little time to do it with uh, votes going to be cast you know, in Iowa and New Hampshire in just a couple months. And we've, uh, we've certainly seen people here willing to, to dig into the archives and, and bring up some of the incidents or, or missteps of the Patrick administ- administration and remind people of those. Uh, interestingly, doesn't sound like the current governor is going to be jumping on that, that bandwagon, uh, kind of giving him a pass out the gate and uh, defaulting to his traditional position of staying out of presidential politics. I think the line he always uses is, anyone who wants to throw their hat into the ring, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Um, more than welcome to. And looking like the legislature is on track as we start to look ahead to next week, um, on track to take some significant action in terms of vaping before they break for this really long holiday recess uh, that runs until after New Year's, uh, during which time the temporary ban on sales of vaping equipment is set to expire on on Christmas Eve. Um, So the House passed its version of a... um, uh, vaping regulation bill uh, that would impose an excise tax and uh, uh, ban flavors, including mint and menthol, and we've talked about that issue a lot here uh, on the takeout. Um, House passed that bill this week. Uh, were there any amendments adopted that that really changed the substance of that bill at all once it got to the floor? Uh, the House did adopt a, a, an amendment from Representative Andy Vargas of Haverhill, uh, basically saying that 30% of the revenue that comes from that new 75% excise tax on e-cigarette products will be directed toward a a community trust fund that every community around the state can tap into for some substance abuse preventions and public health uh, campaigns. Um, This is something that gives towns and cities a lot of leeway. So members stressed that uh, this money will be applied differently in one community than it will in another, but basically outlining a, a sort of purpose and function for what that tax revenue will now go toward. That was probably the, the biggest of the amendments they adopted, unless huh. I'm forgetting something. No, they, um, they, they, I think Chris and I were, were both on the floor and Matt too during that session. And they, as the house usually does, stuck pretty close to the bill the way it was released out of committee. I think the amendment Chris mentioned was pretty similar to the approach the Senate took in their budget, where they also had that 75% e-cigarette tax. Mm-hmm. So that's that's something we could see catch on there as well. Yeah, that's some common ground between the two branches already as as the bill heads to the Senate next week. Yeah, and Chris, Chris brings up the money issue and kind of figuring out how to spend this new excise tax money. But what we heard from a lot of the Republicans, including Brad Hill of Ipswich, was some concern that uh, they don't really know whether or not this bill is a money maker or a money loser. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are uh, increased excise taxes, obviously newly imposed on vaping products that will bring in uh, additional money 
money, but just how much money they'll lose from banning flavored products, including menthol cigarettes, we don't know. I, I received an estimate from uh, the Department of Revenue that was shared with me that said uh, the administration estimates that the sale of menthol cigarettes in FY20 would generate somewhere between 136 and $160 million uh, next year. Now, it's not... Uh, completely wiped off the table. Many of those smokers may just turn to regular tobacco product, but that's a significant uh, chunk of money as this bill moves to the Senate. And we'll see whether or not anyone picks up the idea of uh, looking for a better understanding of the fiscal impact of this bill uh, before it reaches the governor's desk. Yeah, we also heard from Rep. Harrington uh, on the floor. She lives in Groton, said that her local supermarket that she shops at, and we actually went on Google Maps to find out, is is this the closest supermarket to her house? But uh, yeah, the, She shops in Nashua, New Hampshire, yeah, just to be clear. At a market basket. At she lives close basket. to the border. She does live close to the border, but there also is a Shaw's supermarket in Groton. Well, yeah, and... <laughs> Be that as it may, uh, she said that she's encountered people shopping for vaping products uh, up in New Hampshire. Yeah, that's right. She she told a story of running into, I think, a Middlesex County judge who whose wife had quit smoking and moved on to, to traditional smoking and moved on to e-cigarettes. And she ran into him in this, this New Hampshire grocery store trying to get get the products that his wife wants. And... That was a, a question. That's a question we hear often come up on the on the House floor whenever a, a policy is being pursued. What about the border states? What about are we just driving people to New Hampshire, to Connecticut, to Vermont, wherever? Um, and that's that's an issue people are looking at here, particularly with e-cigarettes. Um, if people really prefer that, and there is a a strong group of people there who really prefer this to traditional cigarettes who want to be able to keep doing it, who don't think that a, a ban is the right approach, those people, will they just be spending that same amount of money in other states and still getting the products? Mm -hmm. uh, so as always, most of the amendments that were filed to this bill in the House were quietly withdrawn. Uh, and that includes uh, Rep. Hendricks' bill. He's from down the South Coast, right? Rep. Hendricks' uh, amendment, rather, to um, exempt or to carve out menthol um, uh, flavoring from, from that flavor ban. The menthol piece is interesting because the federal government in 2009 banned flavored cigarettes except for mint and menthol. And Advocates here, as we've talked about, have really been calling the, the menthol piece key. And if this bill does become law as the way it is currently written, Massachusetts would be the first state to ban menthol cigarettes. Um, there are some other states, New Jersey, I think, being one that are looking at doing similar things, but leaving the, the menthol cigarettes allowed. So that's, a, that's an interesting little twist in what Massachusetts is exploring. Yeah, yeah. And maybe we should also point out menthol. It's not all bad news for menthol smokers because uh, if you really need <laughs> to get your fix, you could always find your way to the cigar bar in the Ways and Means Chairman's District. In my uh, district. In your district in the North End uh, because smoke sh these smoking uh, bars uh, are exempt. So if you want to uh, bring your menthol cigarettes into that bar, you're, to uh, buy them, you're more on, than welcome. Yeah. On Hanover Street. Exactly. Next to Cafe yeah. Vittoria. Yeah. Yeah. They got nice leather armchairs, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Spoken like a true North Ender. You sink right in. Um, all right, let's look ahead to next week, shall we? Uh, because it's only on Wednesday of next week. It's really a three-day week, more or less, for us, because 
Wednesday. Are uh, you not coming to work on Thursday or Friday? Well, I mean, in body <laughs> or in spirit. <laughs> on, on Wednesday, uh, which I imagine will be quite a day, um, the legislature has to wrap up any formal business it wants to achieve uh, before the start of 2020. Um, so with our 2020 vision, uh, let's, uh, let's look at what, what might we see happen next week. I mean, there's what's on the menu, right? And then there's what might we actually see get achieved because there's still a lot of conference committee um, work to be done. And I don't know how much of that we think will actually get, get tied well, up in, in the We're days not going to see a tax debate in the House. Well, we know that. We yeah. know that after the Speaker took that off the table. So uh, with that gone, I guess we're waiting, just like the speaker said he's waiting to see if any of these conference reports can get done, uh, including the education funding bill, which is an interesting one. It hasn't been in conference too long, uh, but well, the Baker administration is actively starting to prepare the FY21 budget, if you can believe that. Uh, that will the be- Board of Ed is even voting on their uh, 2021 budget proposal on Tuesday. So there you go. So getting this in place before the recess uh, would be beneficial to a lot of people, and it's something that uh, I think both branches have their eye on, whether or not they can get it over the finish line, I'm not so sure. The other big question mark, I think, is the closeout supplemental budget that closes the books on fiscal year 2019, which we've been tracking for a good few weeks now. The The big, the big piece there is if they don't get it done by next week, uh, do they try and do it in an informal session when any member could table this dissatisfied with the corporate tax breaks that the House included and that the Senate spurned? Or do they wait all the way until January 2020 to close the books on a fiscal year that ended June 30th? Well, that's very well said, Chris. And we know we have seen some of those progressive House members at informal sessions just keeping an eye out. um, Right, basically staking it out so that if the House tried to put together something with that tax break still in it, they could shoot it down and force it to come back up at a formal session. Yeah. And where's distracted driving at, Chris? <laughs> Great question. It's been about two months since Senate President Karen Spilka said that they were very close. And that probably tells you all that you need to know about that. Haven't gotten any word one way or another. For uh, As far as we can tell, they're still at an impasse over the data collection language and what should be done with this data about, uh, you know, uh, what should be done with this data about traffic stops and who is affected by traffic stops. Um, We've been uh, keeping an eye out on it, but as far as we can tell, there haven't been any major developments. Mm. Well, timelines change, right? I think it was earlier this year, maybe June, that Speaker DeLeo said it was within the next week they were going to take up a piece of the governor's dangerousness bill. I know dangerousness is a topic that's been back in the news the last uh, week or two. Um, and that that just never surfaced. So timelines change. Um, also n- next uh, Wednesday, uh, we've got a uh, hearing in the governor's council for Kirsten Hughes. The governor's nominated the former head of the Massachusetts Republican Party for a clerk magistrate position, uh, another in a string of appointments to um, Baker allies, uh, political allies like uh, Jenny Casey, the former governor counselor, who have uh, wound up in, in plum positions in the court system. And uh, Kirsten Hughes's uh, hearing should be interesting, particularly as she comes before the council at a moment when she's uh, actively fighting with the her successor at the head of the party, uh, Jim Lyons. They do not seem to be getting along too well. 
I'm not sure if any of that will come up. Uh, Kirsten Hughes, of course, is a lawyer, uh, so that is her qualification for this position. And, uh, you know, uh, we'll see whether or not uh, the fact that this seems like or looks like a political appointment kind of gums up uh, her nomination at all. And she's a member of the Quincy City Council or maybe a former councillor at this point, Matt. I'm not sure. But... um uh, she's got, I think, the former president of the council, Kevin Coughlin, coming in to testify for her at that hearing next week. And uh, uh, you mentioned that uh, spat with her successor, Jim Lyons, former Rep Lyons. Uh, you had an interesting story this week about a lot of changes at the uh, Mass GOP, Matt, and you got turned on to that topic by an email about folding chairs and tables. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's, it's it just did, a real interesting way that you got turned yeah, out. Yeah, I mean, the story. Jim Milligan, the the political director at the party, uh, sent an email to members of the state committee that I saw, and it, it kind of caught my attention. Just seemed a little unusual. They were uh, basically saying that they were looking for people to help them store about two hundred folding tables and chairs that they no longer needed. Uh, so, uh, you know, I I kind of followed that and pulled that thread, and it turns out that these uh, were. Uh, Furniture, f- furnishings that they used uh, in the more than 40 uh, field offices that the party paid for for candidates to use in the 2016 and 2018 cycles. Uh, the party now wants to sell that off. They were storing it for $1,000 a month in Brighton. Jim Lyons is looking for ways to cut money. Uh, but it also comes at a point where the party uh, under Lyons has been struggling a bit to keep up the fundraising pace that we saw under Hughes. And when uh, Baker was sort of a, a fundraising machine for the party uh, and they still had a very lucrative arrangement with the Republican National Committee that Jim Lyons canceled earlier this year. So as that fundraising has dwindled, uh, you know, the, he's looking to cut money wherever he can. And turns out uh, they're also shaving off some costs by moving the head quarters of the party out of its Merrimack Street offices, where it's been since 2003, uh, and they're moving up to Woburn in uh, the next month. How about that? Uh, A real combo platter of topics this week, folks. Uh, In a sentence, in a sentence from from right to left, so that goes Lasinski, Lan, and Murphy. Um, My right, not your right. Uh, uh, What's one other interesting thing that you covered this week? It's actually two things that go together pretty well. Earlier in the week, we had a group of uh, a couple dozen mayors and town managers calling for a 15 cent increase to the state's gas tax and a couple other options to raise transportation revenue. And then today we had a poll from Mass Inc. of registered voters that supported some options for revenue increases, but were far more split and uh, had less consensus than the mayors on an increase to the gas tax. This would have been a bigger deal if the House was actually doing its revenue debate next week but uh, still kind of sets some of the terms that we'll keep an eye out for. Sure, Katie. That was a really long sentence, Chris. Yeah, yeah actually. I think that it uh, has a lot of commas in it. Some semicolons? Um, looks like, from my end, looks like we will see a Senate uh, climate slash energy bill debate in January, and that means Senator Mark Pacheco is uh, dropping his campaign to push his colleagues to act this month. I'm going to leave you with this, since I have not yet gotten to the bottom of it, but uh, Governor Baker and First Lady Lauren Baker are on their way to Las Vegas this weekend. They're spending a little time alone, so I texted a source uh, to see if maybe the Bakers were going back out there to see a Blink-182 show. If you remember, they went out there after the uh, after he won re-election in 2018. I was told not exactly 
but if I check the live music schedule out in Vegas this weekend, I might be able to figure it out. Ooh, this will be a fun guessing game. And it's going to be sunny in the 70s out in Las Vegas. Not sure what the temperature is here, but a little bit less than that. Um, All right, thanks, folks. Katie, Matt, and our producer this week, Chris Van Buskirk. Have a good one. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.